Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for social justice academics doing the soul's work. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, a social psychologist, Appalachian academic, and clogger with the passion for truth-telling. In the show, I explore the intricate and tangled web of academic socialization and myths that do immense harm to not only our social justice efforts, but also to us as whole humans. What if you could fully embrace your talents, swipe left on fear, declutter your career, claim your enough, and curate the freedom for your most meaningful life? Enough with all the career misery, exhaustion and burnout, academic brainwashing, internalized academic capitalism, and lack of compassion for ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find essays, resources, and hop on my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. For those social justice academics ready to transform their careers, my faculty development courses are also available on the website. Let's get into the show. Nicole T. Buchanan, PhD, is professor at Michigan State University. Dr. Buchanan researches the interplay of race, gender, and victimization, and how they impact the nature of harassment, its impact, and organizational best practices. She also studies faculty of color and ways in which their research is marginalized, for example, epistemic exclusion. She has been highlighted in hundreds of media outlets, is a featured speaker, including TEDx and National Public Radio, NPR, and provides bias and diversity-related training and consultation such as for medical professionals, faculty, clinicians, human resource managers, and police departments. Dr. Buchanan is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science, four divisions of American Psychological Association that includes clinical psychology, um, psychological study of social issues, um, psychological study of ethnic minority issues, and psychology of women, and has received national and international awards for her research, teaching, and professional service. Thank you, Nicole, so much for being here. I'm thrilled. This is long overdue. I'm so glad that we're hanging out. And um, I wanted to give you the opportunity before we get started on the topic about um, the right to say no and values-driven service to maybe give a little background about your own social location, whatever you'd like to share. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me here. Super, super excited. This is probably going to be the best podcast of the year. (laughs) For Uh, sure. (laughs) Your your show, of course. No, yours. Your episode. (laughs) No, 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 you get a prize. Um, Okay. Uh, As far as the way I identify myself, um, I identify as a black cisgender woman and I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm also a licensed psychologist here in Michigan and a tenured full professor at a research intensive, predominantly white institution. And I've been here, this is going to be the start of my 21st year. So my entire kind of grown up academic career has been here at uh, this institution. Mm -hmm. Yes. A couple of decades now. I know when I start thinking yeah, about it. Yeah, it's a fast. Oh my goodness. Okay, time flies. But we do know in terms of service, certain people do a lot of it in the academy, right? So we have lots of data on this. Women, BIPOC faculty, lots of marginalized communities are doing lots of things. You know, faculty um, with various types of disabilities, LGBTQ plus, um, working class, low low income, first gen. Lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds are doing the bulk of the service. So we won't have to go into necessarily all of the data on that. But one of the things I wanted to ask your opinion about and your experience about has to do with how that comes to be, right? Talked about at your your SPICI presentation, noticing that we don't all have the sort of equal access to saying no. It's It's not a level playing field in terms of who's allowed to say no. And so I wanted to maybe for the audience get your view on some contextual factors and social forces maybe that are um, impacting 
what makes it difficult for marginalized faculty of various sorts to say no, but or also you could share your own experiences of what makes it difficult to say no. Absolutely, absolutely. One, I, I want to take a second just to validate for all of those who kind of say, oh, I, I feel like I'm doing more. Um, they did a nationwide study of over 20,000 faculty across 140 institutions, and they found that women did all, a huge range of service activities that others were not doing, and that they were spending more hours per week doing service than everybody else, and that they were often the ones doing the institutional service that was really low in prestige and really high in emotional labor. And then mm. when they looked at other faculty that had uh, minoritized or marginalized identities. They found that BIPOC faculty, queer faculty, um, faculty that came from a working class background were doing four times the amount of service as white faculty every given week. So just to validate, right, if it feels right. like you're doing more, you probably are. Um, but then there's the question of how does this happen? And I think there's a variety of forces. One, we are, we being those who have marginalized identities, are often in a position of having less power. And so others are able to kind of volunteer us to do things. And even though we may have the option of saying no, that there may be a price paid for doing so that we don't want to pay in that moment, or we, we strategically choose not to say no to this because we don't want to rock the boat or because we don't want to make this particular powerful person upset with us, or we, we want to make others, it's not always about the trouble we might be in, but also wanting to make other people happy with us and see our value. So we, we, there's asymmetrical power that creates differences in our capacity and ability to say no, and in the consequences for saying no. Yeah. In addition, we have draws and responsibilities in the academy that most white faculty don't experience or certainly not white male faculty. So I have obligations that I take very seriously that I prioritize that focus around women students, my queer students, my students of color. And I feel an obligation to meet their needs but they also come to me more often because I'm the only one that they see that reflects their, their experiences in the academy. So when there's no other faculty to go to, they're gonna to come to us. So our absence builds into the system that people are going to differentially be calling on us to do these kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. and I think it's our responsibility to take, to say yes to more of those than maybe our colleagues would. But even in that context, we need to start doing more to protect ourselves and in that process, because if we continue to just say yes to these things, we burn out and then we end up where we're not able to do any of the service that we need and we feel an obligation to. Right. Very well said. <laughs> yes. Well, and we could probably spend an hour just on those contextual factors and social influences and pressures. And, um, you know, I wrote down your phrase, no comes with the price. And a lot of times the advice from senior faculty or quote unquote mentors is just say no, just say no, protect your time, just say no, without the analysis, right, of what you just provided. Right. It's not that simple, right? It's a lot more complex than that. What I wanted to share with our dear listeners it are your six ways to prioritize the experience of enacting your values. Did you want to say a little bit about how you came to want to do this uh, presentation in the first place? Part of it came from getting to a point in my career where I had some of the capability, power, um, independence to say no more. And um, realizing just how much of a struggle it had been all of these years. And I probably was pretty successful. There's lots of things I just said no to, but there were so many things that I said yes to that literally were, were 
taking years off of my life that were causing me to have stress-related illness and um, trying to be present for everyone who needed me was depleting me in a way that I couldn't really be effective for anybody who needed me, including myself, including my family. Really turning a critical lens to the, the institution itself, but also academia more broadly. And like, what is driving this? There's a, um, I think there's actually some evidence of this, but I'm not 100% sure of black feminist faculty dying at 56. Mm -hmm. And as I get closer and closer to these numbers, and then starting to have these stress related illnesses and realizing that that this is real and this is scary and I don't want to be dead at 56. Yeah. I, and so what do I need to do differently? And what do I want to show those that are coming behind me? And I realize I am not living a life that I want my junior academics, my students to live. You know, I was living a life that was so very different from what I want from anybody that I love and care about. And if I'm modeling this, you know, everybody does it. No one does what you say. They do what you do. Oh or gosh. they step out of academia altogether. And so I'm finding that I have several of my students that have looked at my life and said, I don't want that. Like I can make more money, have more time for my family, live in more balance outside of the academy. Um, so why would I want to do this? And then I have others that follow my track and then they don't have a pathway for making this a more balanced life. So it, it I needed to model a different existence. And then I needed to actively get the information out there to help those who I've mentored or who have seen all of us go about this life, give them some actual skill sets for doing this differently. So I want to uh, touch on something you said that made me think the following, you basically said it, but I want, I guess I want to make sure people are listening to you, which is to say, we think we're doing all of these things in support of other people, but there are, there are things we're doing that are harmful. So we're showing other people to run yourself into the ground, that that's the way to do it. Right. And so we're not often analyzing what's the downside, not just to ourselves. Right. So if yourself doesn't matter, <laughs> if that's the stance someone's going to take, well, I will run myself into, into the ground for social justice as an academic and all this thing, all these things I'm doing and taking care of everyone and saying yes to all the things you're still doing harm to the people that are coming after you and you're doing harm to the, to your peers that are also running themselves on the ground. Right. So I just appreciate that analysis because we don't often think about it that way. I want to get into the six tips because these are golden and I'm going to say the names of them. And then I'm going to um, ask you to tell us a little bit more about each one. Take notes, people. Okay. Number one, prioritize your mental health and well-being. That sounds revolutionary. Number two, identify and clarify your values. Sounds simple, but who's really doing it? Not a lot of people. Number three, <laughs> make value congruent decisions. Oh, guess what? You have to do number two before you can do number three. <laughs> and then number four says track your progress, which we'll get into what that means. Five, reflect on your experiences based on tracking, I'm assuming. And then six says setting boundaries. Okay. All sound lovely. So let's see, what would you suggest people? We're going to get into concrete <laughs> advice. So how do we exactly prioritize our mental health and well-being, Nicole? <laughs> So this may be the hardest step. So maybe that's why it should be first, because I, I think many of us would say we do the thing. This is a priority. It is important to us. But I look at if you value it and it's truly a value, then I should see time mm. and I should see money dedicated to those tasks. Right. And if fair, you think fair. about in any piece of society, if it's a value, yes, there is time and money dedicated to it. And so if you can't show me where you have a regular routine where you are taking care of your health and well-being, then even if you value it, you're not prioritizing it. Mm -hmm. 
So looking and in, in all honesty, this could look very different based on individual needs. So for some people, it could be participating in some of the skill building opportunities with places like the National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development. Um, some it might be maintaining a regular workout routine and making sure that you're always getting eight hours plus of sleep. Others, it might be finding a therapist that actually understands the demands of academia and can come at it from a culturally responsive lens. Right. So and for many of us, it probably should be all of those things, to be honest. Right. So, um, but doing things that make it so that you're restoring your body, you're storing, you're restoring your mind and your soul so that you can keep on in the good fight and be centered on why you're doing this work in the first place. And a lot of us don't spend time doing that. Yeah. So on your slides, you have things about, um, saying yes to service responsibilities that energize you and maybe only those, right. The word only is important there. So we'll come back to that in terms of the values and then, and then sticking to those. Okay. So on number two, you have identifying, clarifying your values. Okay. How do we even do it? How do we prioritize and clarify our values? So one, we, we can do this a number of ways. One, there's time for just the reflection. Like what are the things that I really find important? Um, and, and then if you feel like you need additional ideas, or if you feel like it's, it's kind of too narrow, there are lists that show here are core values. And you can go over those lists and really think about what are the ones that are of, of importance to you. And then what do you think is important now? And what do you think is important for the long term? Because those, those priorities change. You know, if you have younger children, your values might be very different from when you have adult children. But then I also encourage people to think about how is this actually showing up in your life right now? Because again, if it's a value, if it's a priority, we should be able to point to how we're living this out on a regular basis. So if we value health and we value well-being, how is this actually reflected in your life currently? And if I were prioritizing this properly, what would I expect it to look like five years from now, 10 years okay. from now? You know, how would my life be, how would my life look if I'm living consistent with that being a, a value? Mm-hmm. And um, it, often we, we don't take that long-term view and that long-term view can really help us sustain those goals sometimes. Okay. Yeah. I like that. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? And then maybe we can backtrack it from there. <laughs> and, and also importantly, how do I want this value to be enacted in my life? Right. Like if I'm doing this now through the next five years, what should I expect life to be like? Mm -hmm. Mm, This is getting saucy. I love it. Okay. So let's say we've figured out like, these are my core three to five values. I've sort of sat down and I've written that out. Maybe I made a poster, (laughs) not talking about myself at all here. Um, (laughs) And then that's great. And then all these requests come in that I'm like, Oh, it's really important. I need to say yes to that promotion request. I literally just met my limit in terms of, you know, external reviews and PNT reviews. And I got another one that I was like, I have to say yes to this one because this person does all this work that I can speak to. And there's, it's kind of a niche and I don't know, you know, not that I'm the only one that can speak to their work, but it just felt like, you know, this is when the rubber meets the road. When do I say no? Okay. So you tell me. This next tip is make value congruent decisions, which can actually get me saying yes more, but I'm going to be quiet and learn from you. Well, and if I can backtrack, because something you said reminded me of something, um, a colleague of mine, David Vasquez at American University, we are on peer mentoring calls. And I was talking about this phenomenon of, you know, there's no one else here to do it. So I take it on. And one of the things he mentioned is if you always cover that gap, they never see a reason to bring in a second one of you. Yeah. Especially if we're talking about within like a department. 
for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if, and we deny opportunities for our junior faculty or peers to right. kind of have these opportunities. So being really thoughtful of mm-hmm. even those times where it feels like I'm the only one, maybe you find somebody who could use that opportunity as a stepping stone or, and I, I don't say do this with tenure letters but as a broader thing, right? Uh, or we go ahead and we let it slipped through the cracks and we let them experience not having that gap filled Mm -hmm. so that they start to feel what, um, feel the pain that goes with that, that not being addressed. You know, it's that whole thing of, if they feel no discomfort, they feel no pain, they're never going to fill the gap. They're never going to make another hire. So we have to stop stepping up and always doing for everybody else. We, we have our values identified. It was go back to like more of an individual level model. Then we start to align them with our decisions and it helps us to begin to say yes to what's important to us and what is aligning with our values. But it also invites us to then deliver this value driven no. You know, this is not congruent with my values. And those values should include my health and well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um, and it might involve weighing out, like this is this is consistent with my value of being recognized as a scholar in the field, but it's inconsistent with my value of my long-term health and well-being. So now which one am I going to prioritize? Hopefully we'll be thinking about that long-term health and well-being. Yeah. Um, one of the things too, that I often will encourage people is to rethink ways of doing some of these tasks. Uh, one of the, the problems I found myself in is I was telling people all of my biggest grandiose dreams for what I hope to accomplish. And then I was actually getting dinged because I wasn't accomplishing everything that I had promised. So, and for example, my review committee, I'd say, oh, I'm going to do this year, this year, I'm going to take care of this, and I'm going to have this come out and all of these things. And then when they came back to review me, even if I did 10 amazing things, I was always at fault because I didn't do the all 15 that I told. Uh-huh. And that yeah. taught, taught me an important lesson that always under promise and then over perform, mm-hmm. meaning that you set goals with your service, with your, well, all of your major milestones, but you, you set achievable goals and you announce your achievable goals and you give yourself a generous timeline to complete that goal. And then when you accomplish these goals and you do it earlier than you promised and better than you promised, now you've overperformed in your, your big shot. Mm-hmm. So being certain that we're, we're really thoughtful about what are we communicating to other people? What are we telling them we're going to achieve and by when, and then making that a little smaller, stretching out that timeline so that we're not in this position of, of having built in unreasonable expectations on the kinds of tasks that we're taking on. And we're getting into marketing strategies in some ways. Yeah. I didn't right? think of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we've talked about so far that you can give us an example Either something you've done that's about the prioritizing the well-being or figuring out the values and getting real clear on them or a moment where you had to make a decision between, you know, not, not even between, but a decision to say no, even though it's something that you might feel a little heartstrings pulled to. Because I think that's where social justice academics get into the most trouble. Yeah, I can tell you a really a big one, one that um, I had to make some real difficult choices and do some real soul searching um, for deciding how I was going to go forward with my career. And that was uh, last August. So almost a year ago now, I made the decision to leave our clinical program. Now I'm a clinical community psychologist by training. Um, My contributions to the clinical psychology field have been really important to me. And um, we were in this space in our clinical program that I realized my work here is, is gone as far as I can take it. I can stay here and I can stay in this fight and I can keep trying to convince these people that these ways are beneficial and we can transform the program in these ways. But I realized I couldn't, I was not 
effective in changing the bigotry and the institutionalized problems in our department at a fast enough pace that it was going to still be a good use of my time. Uh Um, And this was incredibly painful because it's a core part of my identity. Right. It's a core part of my values. So the idea of when we say yes, the idea of having diversity related, um, justice, equity, and diversity included inclusion, a Jedi related content infused within our clinical training. That is very much aligned with my core values. But I, I finally realized I had to say no to continuing with this particular program because it was robbing me of what I could contribute on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So that, for, that was one where it was very painful and very difficult. And ultimately I'm convinced the right decision. So, oh my gosh. So we need to have a whole other episode about major career decisions that are like an internal identity struggle, because that is, that's, that's real as real, because it's about the values and the identity. And then realizing having a moment where you recognize that you can actually let go of one space and grow much bigger in these values and this contribution in another space. This idea of what does it mean to, you know, floating quotations here, give up. Mm-hmm. And feeling like if I leave this program, if I give up on this, then I am abandoning the field. I'm exactly. Students that right. I adore. I'm, I'm right. leaving the field to people that don't share my values or are going to shape it in a way that's inconsistent with what the field needs. Right. So it was a, it was an incredible internal struggle. And I don't think I could have successfully convinced myself I needed to leave if I didn't simultaneously see that there's a path for me to have greater national influence on these same yes. topics. Yes. Like, For tracking your progress. Okay. (laughs) So one of the tricks I'll say is I try to have my CV open at all times on my desktop with all your other tabs. Yes. My thousands of tabs. Uh And one of the benefits of that is I get a request and I put it into my CV right away and I could put it as something, you know, pending, but it's there because especially when it comes to service, it becomes invisible even to us. Interesting. And there are all of these things that we do that we no longer have any accountable accountability for because they're not codified in anything. And yeah. your CV is the story of your whole life. And it should have all that yeah. It should have absolutely every single one of these tasks that you're doing somewhere. So I try to keep mine open all the time and I just add to it. You know, it's super exciting when you're adding stuff every day, but that can also be an indication. That's also, that is exactly right. I was like, wait a minute, but do you check it before you'd say a yes? Is it, is it also your, this is a lot in this section. Maybe you need to stop with the yeses for a minute. Like, do you use it as a tool to hmm, assess? I'm going to say you've just offered an awesome. Assess a yes. Okay. <laughs> Assess a yes. I like that. Okay. Um, I, I haven't used my CV in that way. I typically talk about like, let's, let's think about this from a semester to semester or a year to year, mm-hmm. maybe even smaller increments, like a month to month and encourage people to you know, track what you're doing and also consider setting boundaries. I'm like, no matter what comes through, I'm only going to do three talks a semester. Preset the yes. limit. Okay. I love it. Yes. And especially this gives you an out of your, I've met my capacity for mm-hmm. this semester. It, it gives you a way, but if you, you yourself know what's reasonable for me is to do no more than X number of this kind of activity, then knowing that and holding yourself accountable to, to stopping when that comes. And that also makes you more picky when you're given the opportunities because mm-hmm. you're saying, oh, I only can do three talks this semester. Do I really want to do this random talk in this department that, yeah. you know, is, is hostile to my topic anyway? Or yeah, make them count, make them count for real yeah, every time. I yeah. Have opportunities. <laughs> Um, you know, where I can actually create some change. 
making sure you have these things documented. And the documentation, um, the reason why I like to have it like by semester is it also goes back and it gives me something to look at to exactly what you're talking about is, ooh, I already have these 20 things that I'm supposed to get done this semester. Maybe I should just be saying no at this point and getting that time-limited framework of I've taken on too much or I'm on the verge of taking on too much. Yeah, okay. So we've tracked our progress. So we're tracking, tracking what we're doing. We have all the tabs open. What is this <laughs> reflecting on your experiences tip? Tell us more about that. So it's very easy to just go through the semester and then start the next semester and to never really give yourself time to think through what did these different activities feel like for me? Mm -hmm. um, so one, being able to capture how much time did I really spend? And this is important because we'll often say, oh, I'll take the student talk. I'll go and I'll go to speak to the student group. And we think it's, you know, it's 60 minutes. What's the big deal? Well, <laughs> you have the time of getting it booked. You have the time of traveling there and back. You have the time that you're actually talking with leadership to find out what they need and to do it. If it's not a pre-existing talk, you have to create the talk. If it is a pre-existing talk, you still have to do some tweaks, at least on like title page and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, then you have the time that you spend answering questions and mingling with students that are like amazed at what you had to say, but you're now there longer than you anticipated. And then you have the time with dealing with the emails that are coming in from your talk of these people having questions. So the 60 minute, no big deal talk might actually be three, four plus hours. Right. And if you are critically aware of, oh, when I say yes to this, this is the amount of time it actually takes, mm -hmm. then you can make an informed decision. But part of how we end up in this sense of overwhelm is because we have all of these little things in our life that we think are 15 minute obligations, hour long obligations, when they're really about four times as long as that. Yeah, at least. We uncritically say yes, thinking they're not a big deal. So we want to we want to reflect on what is the actual time we spent, but then we also want to reflect on how did this activity actually align with my personal values, and with my institution's merit standards? Because we mm -hmm. want to be at least mindful of how is this going to be codified in my annual review, in my merit pay increases, and are there ways that I can be strategic about making the opportunity something that counts, mm -hmm. or um, at least being thoughtful up front about this is something I'm doing that will not contribute in that way or something that can contribute in that way. So you wanna reflect on the number of experiences you're having, how long they're actually taking, how are they aligned with your values and with your institution's values. And then I encourage people to ask some questions. How did I feel while I was actually doing this work or mm -hmm. as I anticipated getting ready to go do this work? Uh, one of the things that I noticed, especially during the pandemic, the active phase of quarantine, is I had now gotten to this opportunity of doing lots and lots of talks by Zoom. And it seemed so much easier because now I didn't have to travel. I was saying yes, yes, yes. And I realized there was a point where I was starting to dread the getting ready to go onto the Zoom talk. And I was beginning to, and it was a sign for me that I had just said yes to far too many of them. And I was getting exhausted and burnt out. So really paying attention to, did you feel neutral? Did you feel good? Or did you actually have that sense of dread as you went to fulfill the service obligation? And right. letting that be part of your reflection. Um, thinking about, well, I thought this, this, you know, I thought about it at first, and I had these values and I expected that this activity was going to meet this value that I had. Well, did it in the end, mm -hmm. did it do, did it fulfill that value in a way that overrode any of the dread or time that it took from you? 
and, and spending some time reflecting on those things so that you are able to use that information going forward when you have that next request that we all know is probably already in our inbox for a service again. Yes, it is there. We're going to delete that. Suggestion, strong suggestion number six, setting boundaries. Oh, right. This one's so easy to say. <laughs> uh huh. Please teach me a wise one. <laughs> so one of the things is, um, you know, we, we get to this point, hopefully, where we've now been able to master saying no to things that are are not consistent with our values. And then we're only doing those things that align with our values. But the thing is, that's actually easier than, and you hinted at this earlier, Kim, when we are trying to live within our values and we're saying yes to things that are consistent with our value, we're going to attract more service requests that align with our values. Yeah, this is rough. So now we're getting more and more things that we would love to do that would make us feel good, that are aligned with our values, that, that are aligned with our promotion and tenure and merit reviews. Like now what do we do? Well, this is where it becomes important to have those pre-existing boundaries of, I only will do three of these types of activities a semester. Yep. So no matter how many come, my rule is I will only do three. And uh, making sure that as you're doing these things, you're putting them into your calendar and you're putting them into your calendar with not only the time for that activity, but the prep time. And the exactly. I never do that. Yes. Cause you'll see that this, you know, talk that I have to go do, well, it also involved a 30 minute drive there and drive back. And I had to do that. And as you actually map out that total amount of time and you see it in your calendar and how much time it took, you will begin to make better choices and set better boundaries. Like first you have to know what it's taking from you before you can set up appropriate boundaries around it. Mm -hmm. So by setting these kinds of boundaries, we are giving ourselves the opportunity to keep doing the kinds of things that we really love, but most importantly, being able to be really energized in doing the things we love because we're not doing them to the point where they're exhausting us. What if you said no to that you really wanted to do? I did say no to like three promotion and tenure requests this year, but I said yes to too many. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not good at saying no to those. So things that I've had to say no to, I'd probably say the things that are hardest for me are going to do talks, um, especially things that are going to have a large platform. I, I really love public speaking. I love being able to talk about these kind of issues and the opportunity to go somewhere and give this talk mm -hmm. is something that I really love and really value, but it counters some of my other values, but also realizing that as I have more and more of these opportunities, they come at a direct cost with the value I have in being here to raise the last of my little ones. Um, and, and launch him and only having a few more years in that, in that role while I'm actively still parenting someone and my values around being with my partner and making sure that we're having this quality time as we begin to transition, not having children in the house. And so that's probably been hardest because it's so aligns with what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. I love doing it's consistent with my values. It's giving me a platform to share information that I think is really critically important to the field. And, and, and I love to travel. So all of it comes together but I'm saying no to more and more of them because it's, it really takes quite a bit away from these other places that I place a lot of value as well. And now we're really getting to it that the values don't align with each other always. Right. And so that's what makes this so difficult, right? Because the value of, I really want to be able to have this influence. I want to go give this talk. I'm Nicole. And I want to go give this talk on um, how to say no and value driven <laughs> service. And also 
I value my own well-being and being with my family. And maybe that's one of the things we don't talk about as much as values-driven service is still so complex, even if you get down to what your values are, because they may not agree with each other all the time. So in some ways they can't all be equal. All the values can't have equal weight. And I, I would say it's gotten much more challenging for me now that I'm in a place where most of the requests I get are things I want to do. Exactly. So, we created a whole new problem for ourselves. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a good this problem. This is to why have. it's important to have done that work to clarify your values and really okay. make sure that you have them kind of ranked and yeah. that one of those has to be around your health and wellness. And hopefully that becomes one of the top ranked ones because all of these other things, especially because they're moments in time, they're so easy to say yes to, but those moments add up and can accumulate and to have really robbed you from your health, wellness, and and family values. Oh, I guess I I did violate my own rule the other day when I got that particular request, because I thought about it for a second. And then I replied, it was, it was not a no, (laughs) it was not a no reply. And you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about your next thing here, which is tips and tricks for saying no. And I always give this advice, which is take time. Don't reply right away with your first instinct, which is usually a yes instinct, right? What did I do? I'm glad you're here because I clearly should not be giving advice. Tips and tricks for saying no. Can you help us with that one? I can. And in fact, I'm going to segue off of what you said. <laughs> but I, when I think about my tips and tricks for saying no, many of them are directly aligned with the work I do with clients around assertiveness. And so what are some of the things around assertiveness training? And there's the Center for Clinical Interventions, and they have a free 10-module assertiveness workbook that you can do on your own, or you can do it with a therapist, or you can do it with a group. Like if you have a faculty group and you guys are all kind of trying to build these skills. But a lot of what I talk about directly or indirectly comes from the assertiveness work I do with that manual with my clients. So some things, like you mentioned, I encourage people never say yes or no on the spot. And here's the thing, you're teaching people how to treat you and what to expect from you. And so make it your standard rule that you always have a mandatory 24 hour consideration period. Mm -hmm. And in that period, you let you, you're taking time to review your current obligations, your timeline, what kind of gut feeling is it giving you when you think about having to do the task? Um, if you have a review committee, you talk to them and how does this align with what I've been, you know, what I need to do, but you get to the, you get to the point where everybody understands that you will never say yes or no on their spot. You will always take 24 hours or 48 hours to review the request. And then you will get back to them. This removes the challenges with face-to-face, you know, mm-hmm. feeling like, oh, this person's looking at me waiting for an answer. Right. And you can just make it, thank you so much for thinking about me for this request. Um, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity. As a standard rule, I always take at least 24 hours or whatever your number needs to be to consider taking on a new task and uh, to look at my calendar to see that I can really do the work with the, with and live up to my standards and doing the work. So I will get back to you by X. And you have to honor doing that but you start to make it clear that you're not somebody that can be, be, um, I don't want to say bullied, but pressured maybe. Right. The hallway ask. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people just start to know this about you. And when we establish those kind of firm, like, this is just how I do things. People start shaping what they ask of you to meet those standards, or they become really clear that they're going to be the person to violate that. And then you learn strategies for dealing with that too. But that 24 hour mandatory period is, is really important. 
Um, in addition to that, I encourage people, if you are pre-tenure and you have an annual review committee, have this conversation with them and you know, talk to them about these are the kinds of things I'm getting and how will that align with my ultimate tenure packet. At one point, I my review committee was very helpful and they just said, from now on until you go up for tenure, just say no to all of these types of tasks. And if anybody asks, you just say, my review committee has informed me that I need to say no to these until I'm tenured. Right. And that bought me like this two-year period where lots of the things going on in the department, I could just say, my, my, my annual review committee said no. And although that was not the most assertive response, a assertive response would have come directly from I'm declining this, but it did help with all the negativity that can come along pre-tenure and when people with power ask you to do things that mm -hmm. you, you know, that, that don't align with where, where you need to be going. What happens then when you're post-tenure? Depending on your university system, you might now have several years between reviews or you might not ever formally be reviewed in the same way again. I encourage people to form their own no committee. And this can be people in your institution or outside of your institution. Definitely people at hopefully at different stages of careers where you just come to one another and you talk about, hey, this, this service opportunity came up or this particular opportunity came up and you go through, here's the pluses, here's the negatives. And they get to tell you, well, it turns out if you're on this kind of committee at this national level, this can actually be really impactful if you're wanting to go into this direction. Or they can say, actually, what I've experienced is this kind of role, they might give you this bump in pay or you know, administrative pay, but then it's actually four times as many hours as they promised. And it actually doesn't end up like you get this kind of information that helps right. you make informed decision, because a lot of the stuff that happens mid-career and senior career, there's there's not the same kind of formal mechanisms to get feedback. Oh, that's so true. So we need to work with one another and we need to have people that are willing to ask you the hard questions about like, why are you really even considering this? What is this? What's really behind this task? Um, here are the roadblocks you might face, or here's some of the benefits to saying yes to this that maybe you haven't even considered yet and might want to consider. That no oh my gosh. I think we need more people telling us the reasons to say no than we need them <laughs> to help us think of reasons to say yes. For like most, really of good us, that. most of us, it's true. We're Although so good I will at that. say there are times where I'm just so exhausted, where I'm just like throwing a no, you get a no and you get a no and you get a no. And sometimes one of my, I, one of my um, no committee members is Isis Settles and she will come in and say, just, just take a moment and think about this piece. This is the pro, this is the con, and then make a decision. And very often it still comes down to a no, but also it, it informs what kinds of things I should think about, which mm -hmm. sometimes I lose sight of it when I'm really exhausted. I get that. Is there anything else you would like to say about, I mean, generally just career planning, what it, what does it mean to be doing social justice work in the academy? Why are we still in it? For example, <laughs> so many of the people you and I both know are exiting the premises. Is there any, any piece of advice that you've gotten that's helped you? One, I think it can be really useful to coalesce with people who are in some of the same struggles and share some of the same values. So um, if I think about the, the um, Feminist Psychologist Institute right. and how beneficial it is to have this group of scholars who at least kind of get most of the same stuff and you don't have to do that backdrop of explaining all of the background before you can even get to the substantive conversation. Right. You just get the, the piece so that you can move on to that next piece. Um, I think that that is really important, having a, having a coalition of people that you connect with that are at other institutions, other departments in your same university mm -hmm. and people within the department so that you have multiple tiers of um, feedback and mentoring. Get that support map filled out basically. 
yeah. <laughs> internal, external, all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then, uh, the, the presentation I did and the talk that we're talking about right now is going to be in an upcoming book. You're making sure that you're getting books from scholars who have gone through that struggle and they are giving you a roadmap for some of the ways that they've been able to be successful can be really useful. And I will mention the book. This is perfect. I pulled up the slide to make sure we mentioned. So I have a chapter, a couple of chapters in there. The chapter is value dri- values driven service and the right to say no. The book is feminist and the road to tenure transforming the Academy. And the editors are Kate Richmond, Isis settles, Alex Zillin and um, Stephanie Shields. Thank you, Nicole. We need this. We need all of it. We need it every day. We all need to be able to contact you. So you can tell us if we should say yes or no. So <laughs> I encourage everyone to email Nicole and ask her opinion. All right, then thank you so much for being with us and sharing the tips because we will forever need them and we'll forever need to create more tips. So this is a good start. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for listening to the enough y'all podcast. I hope our chats validate your experiences, inspire you to embrace self-compassion and give you hope for wellness and balance as you navigate your career as a social justice academic. As a reminder, you can find essays, resources, professional development options, and a link to join my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. Until next time, remember you are already enough.